Praise the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? One person's having a good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good morning. Hallelujah. All right. We got five or six now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you would turn in your Bibles to First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one. <clears throat> Hallelujah. I want to give you a little context to the scripture. I'm actually preaching on verse 7 this morning, but I want you to see the context here. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is just about the last chapter in his life uh, that he writes. And uh, he's kind of saying his farewells to everybody um, as he's in prison and about to be executed. And um, so very important context here. And he's writing to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it now lives in you. For this reason I remind you, okay, now this is where it gets into the substance of what we're preaching this morning. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now listen to this. For the Spirit God gave us, you know the Spirit is capitalized. This is the Holy Spirit that God gave us, right? The Spirit that God gave us does not make us timid or fear. It's not a spirit of fear, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me with suffering, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed, revealed through the powering and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you anoint this word, Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. And uh, Father, that you would give us the strength and the courage to do what you've called us to do, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Notice in verse 7. It says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Some of you uh, may have a version that says more like this. King James Bible, it says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. How many recognize that verse? God has not given us a spirit of fear. And uh, I kind of chose the one that says a spirit of timidity this morning because I want to really stress that word this morning. Um, this is a very well-known scripture, and a lot of times um, we say spirit of fear, and I don't think when we say spirit of fear we fully get the picture of what that word is and what Paul is trying to say. And the reason I say that as we go in here, in fact, the title of my message is Faith Over Fear. And um, I prefer to have a positive uh, message and a positive title. Faith Over Fear is a positive phrase that actually states that we're going to have faith over the thing that's in front of us, which is this fear. Not having a spirit of fear as Christians, right? Now, my title could have been 
And it's my subtitle, Cowardly Passive Christians. And the reason I didn't go with that as my title is because how many when you hear that you feel a little dejected? And it's more accusatory almost. Cowardly passive Christians could have been my title today, but I chose faith over fear because God's calling us to have faith over whatever this fear is that he's talking about. And I think sometimes when we say fear and we use that word rather than truly understanding this Greek word, I think it almost is too broad of a heading. Because how many know we have a lot of different fears? And we can all say, yeah, I don't want the spirit of fear. I want the spirit of power and of a sound mind and um, and of love. But when we begin to look at this word, in fact, I look at some other versions and it says, God did not give us a spirit that makes us timid, is one definition that a translator used. One is, uh, he didn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity. Another one is, he didn't give us a spirit of cowardice. Another says, he didn't give us a spirit of fear. So something, as you begin to look at translators, trying to translate the Greek word into English, you begin to see that there's something a little unique about this word, that fear doesn't quite capture it. And so we begin to look at the word and we go to Strong's and we look at the word and it's word uh, Delia in the Greek and it means to be timid, fearful, or a coward. And so this actually, in fact, you look at the, the word and it means to be in a state of passivity, a state of holding back, or a state of failing to step up and not doing what is required. How many know that's different than fear? Some people say, well, go back to that spirit of fear and sound mind and love. But see, that's not the word. We can't just use the broad term. This term is, uh, God did not give you a spirit of being a coward. God didn't give you a spirit of being passive. God didn't give you a spirit of not stepping up. God didn't give you a spirit to just sit back and watch. God gave you a spirit of power and to love and to have a sound mind. And that's different. And, you know, some of you have studied uh, history. How many would consider yourself history buffs? And I've studied a lot of history. I've studied a lot of wars. And uh, we've been studying, uh, in, in fact, uh, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon called Battle Ready. And then last weekend, uh, Eddie stayed with the theme, preached a sermon called Basic Training. And we've been talking about the battle. But as I've studied history, it doesn't matter how well equipped you are. It doesn't matter how well you know your weapons of warfare if you don't have a heart to fight, if you're timid, if you're passive, if you're not doing what's required of you to step up. And Eddie talked about it this morning, and he did not look at my notes, I know. I was a little concerned last time I preached, he might have looked at my notes, but I'm positive he didn't this morning. But as you study history, one thing you notice is, Like, for instance, the Civil War. As you study the Civil War, one of the problems that both sides had, but especially the South, was they had a real problem when they would engage in battle. How many of you know when you go to battle, it's not like a football field, and you're like, we're going to go meet at the football field, and we're going to battle, then we're going to go back home. No, you fight in the creeks, you fight in the woods, you fight in the wherever you happen to come upon the enemy, That's where you fight. And one of the problems that the South had, and really every army that there's ever been, the the problem is you could engage in a battle and there were a lot of guys that would go hide in the woods. Have you ever thought about that? 
There are lots of guys, if they were fighting in the creeks and the woods, they would just literally find a place to hide and they would not fight. And there was not a worse person in that army than that person. When they talk about that person, um, they were considered cowards. And every army had a problem with this. And so the South, one of the things that they did, they literally had people behind the regiment, and if somebody were found to be doing that, they would shoot them on the spot. And you say, well, why would they do it? Why were they so harsh? Because you're engaging the enemy, and you're expecting your whole regiment to stand with you, and then you look around and everybody disappears. And you're fighting valiantly to the end, and you've got people that have fallen out of the regiment and left you there to die. And church, that's what I'm getting at in this message. Paul is ready to die for his faith, and he's encouraging Timothy, don't be that person that doesn't fight for the faith. I'm entrusting it to you, and I don't, God didn't give you that spirit to back away. I'm not backing away. You don't back away. And God didn't give that spirit. He gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. He didn't give us a spirit to be cowardly, passive Christians. See, that could have been my title. Aren't you guys glad that wasn't my title? Because this is what God doesn't want us to do. Um, you say, well, is it a problem? I look at our country, and I think it's a problem. I think we have a lot of cowardly, passive Christians that just don't ever stand up for anything. Don't ever do anything that's going to affect me in a negative way. I'm not going to stand up to anything. I'm not going to stand up for anything for my country. I'm not going to stand up anything for my family, for my church. I'm just going to literally have no backbone when it comes to my faith in Christ. And I'm just going to cower to everything. And so as we were beginning to look um, in church, this is a message that is not cowardly, passive Christians. This is a message, you have faith over that fear. You have faith over that cowardice. You have faith over being passive. And so that's what this message is. And I was, we were in our Bible study on Wednesday night and we were studying the book of Mark. And as we were studying the book of Mark, I started noticing a trend in the book of Mark that I hadn't noticed before. And that was Jesus kept confronting fear and he also kept demonstrating authority. I mean, it's like you can't miss it. It's very, very openly the theme in Mark. You know, everybody is afraid constantly in that book all the way through the first nine chapters and Jesus just keeps showing his authority. And so the Holy Spirit just kind of made me sensitive to that. Like, why are you trying to show me that pattern there? And so I started praying about it, and I, and I just started doing a study on it. I said, what is the connection between fear and authority? And I was thinking, what is that connection? And I kind of felt dumb after I put it in. Listen to this. This is from a secular book, Right? I just put in the connection between fear and control, right? Not only do institutions use fear to maintain authority, but individuals do too. Those who seek power manipulate the fears of others to get what they want. If a person can control another's fear, they can use that to influence them. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So you mean to tell me that governments, institutions, people in power use your fear to control you? And as I began to study it, volumes and volumes 
and volumes are written on how we are controlled by our fears. And you say, well, no, not me. Do you know all they have to do is make you fear ISIS in another country? And they can control how much money they take from you to fight ISIS. All they have to do is give you a fear of nuclear weapons and you'll give a large portion of your income to fight against nuclear powers. You know, all they have to do is tell you a little bit about crime in a city far away and you'll be concerned every day and live in fear about crime. Every political cycle, how many noticed that there were riots in every city that had to do with race? Out of control, cities burning on fire. Everybody's fed up with racism, right? We're tired of racism. Racism is awful. Racism is everywhere. It's the prominent feature everywhere. And I told my wife, I said, you watch what happens when this election is over. There'll be sudden peace. How many notice that? There weren't any race riots anymore. Suddenly everybody was okay with what was going on in the world. And what's going to happen when this next election comes? we got a real race problem again. I better vote for somebody so I can solve this race problem. I better vote for somebody so I can solve this terrorism problem. Well, if the powers of this world control you by your fears, which obviously they do, where do you think they got that from? Satan controls you by your fears. And Jesus is trying to demonstrate, I have authority over every fear that you have. And if I have authority, you don't need to be afraid anymore. And so Jesus in the book of Mark is demonstrating his authority so you'll just trust him and quit fearing everything in this world. And you say, well, what do you think I'm afraid of, Chad? I'm afraid of nothing. You're afraid of dying. You go, that's pretty serious. You live your whole life scared to death. You're going to die. And Jesus said, I've conquered death. To die is gain. When you're in my presence, all your problems are going to be over. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sadness. No more sorrow. But every day you live saying, oh man, I'm going to regret this. I'm going to regret that. Can I tell you something? When I'm in the presence of God, I have not a single regret. But we live every day afraid we're going to die. We live every day afraid of our money situation. I'm not going to have enough to do this. I'm not going to have enough to do that. We live every day worried about all of these different things. We're worried about this country and we can't do a thing to change it. And we live every day with fear instead of living every day in faith. And it just, it's, it's, it's destroying some of your lives. You can't have faith because you have fear. And so Jesus is clearly confronting this in Mark. And so I want to begin to show you how he's addressing this. In the very end of a few of these passages, he uses the same word. Uh, this word that literally means passivity. And he asks the disciples, why do you have this? Um, if the disciples who are directly being trained by Christ are struggling with this passive cowardice, how many understand that we will struggle with it and we have to fight it? And we have to have faith to conquer it. And so God is teaching us through the scriptures and through his disciples, through Peter and through Paul. Paul had conquered it. Uh, Paul had no fear of death. How many can see that in Paul's life? I mean, he's in a Roman prison. He's fearless. He's preached the gospel to everybody. He's nearly been killed many times. That's a guy that doesn't live with fear. His faith conquered it, and he's telling Timothy, hey, be like me. Be like me. And then the disciples struggled with it, and here's how Jesus was trying to teach them. I want you to see the patterns that I recognized on Wednesday night. Listen to Mark 6.35. I'm going to read Mark 6, Mark 8, 
And then I'm going to let you see Jesus' reaction to this. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of a background here. Um, These people are constantly in fear. In fact, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, in his evaluation of religion, said that the men over the centuries have been afraid of natural um, disasters, nature, all these things that have to do with food, shelter, um, any of their needs. They've been afraid of those things. So they've depended on religion and dependent on God. He goes, now that science has overcame a lot of those natural disasters, there's no need for God. In fact, Machiavelli, how many have ever heard of him? He wrote uh, very uh, volumes on how to control people through government. And he said that he was quoted as saying that you can uh, either do it through love or you can do it through fear. And he said, if you can't have both, fear is preferential. Because it is more effective to control them with fear than with love. And so what we find with Jesus is, he's trying to demonstrate, I have a kingdom where love reigns, but Satan has a kingdom where fear reigns. And he's trying to really kind of compare the two. And so when Jesus comes along, he starts demonstrating his authority in the book of Mark. And so everything that they would be afraid of, nature death, sickness, everything that they were afraid of, Jesus one by one in a matter of a very short period of time uh, demonstrates his authority over literally everything that they would possibly be afraid of in their day. And this would be the equivalent to him coming into our day, and our needs are a little bit different, but it would be the equivalent of Jesus coming in and taking every fear that we have and Immediately just showing his authority over each one. Demonstrating to our society that I am the answer and I am the authority over every problem that you may run into. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. So listen to this one instance here. How many think the people in that day were concerned about food? Like how are we going to feed ourselves every day? And so this is the section... There's other sections where he heals every disease. There's another section where he casts out every demon. Another section where he demonstrates his power over death itself, where he heals people who have died. Now he's demonstrating his power over food, right? He says, when it grew late, this is Mark 6.35, when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They found out and they said, five and two fish, five loaves of bread and two fish. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed it, broke the loaves Now those that had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men, not including their wives and kids. How many think that's a pretty good demonstration that I have the power over agriculture? Okay, it'd be like coming in here and say, Chet, what do we have? Two Snickers bars and a couple of Mountain Dews. Right? Maybe that's not the healthiest meal, right? All right. Two sandwiches. Right? Maybe a couple glasses of tea, I don't know. And just imagine there were 5,000 in this room, just men, not including their families. And Jesus said, yeah, I know this church is in the middle of nowhere and there's no restaurants near. And they're like, let them go get lunch somewhere. They were in a very remote place. And Jesus said, no, let's go on and feed them with what we have. What do we have? A couple loaves of bread and... You know, not a whole lot here. And he feeds them all. Miraculously. 
You say, wow, that's a miracle of all miracles, right? Mark chapter 8, two chapters later, right? This one's in a Jewish territory. Now listen, now in in, in chapter 8, this is two chapters later, right? It says, in those days, there was again a large crowd. They had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they already stayed with me three days They have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where is this remote place? We're in this remote place. Can any, can they get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks and broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said to these, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied, and they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 people were there. So how many see this? He fed 5,000, and then in a different instance, two chapters later, he feeds 4,000. So what is he trying to say here? Well, let's continue on to the story here and see what he's trying to teach them. Let's go back to verse 6 of that chapter 8. It says, He told the crowd to sit down when he broke the seven loaves, gave thanks. He broke them and gave them disciples, distributed them, and they did so. That a few small fish as well, gave thanks for that, told the disciples, distribute them. The people ate, were satisfied. Okay, now here's where he fed them, broke the pieces. 4,000 were present. Now let's follow the next verse. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. How many think that he just fed 5,000, he just fed 4,000? That's a pretty good sign from heaven. (laughs) You know, amazingly. But they're asking for a sign from heaven. It says Jesus sighed deeply. Can you see that sigh? Like, wow. They want a sign from heaven. Okay. Then it says, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, crossed the other side. Then the disciples forgot to bring bread. except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Why is that important? He fed 5,000, he fed 4,000. They get in the boat and the disciples forgot to bring enough bread for that small crew in the boat to eat, right? So what's it telling you? They're worried about their food, right? They just had fed 5,000. They just had fed 4,000, and they're worried about lunch, right? Oh, you you think it's just them, right? (laughs) And he says, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? See, Jesus said, watch it, you're being just like them. So you gotta really, you gotta figure this out. This is a mystery here. He's saying, quit it. You're just being, you're being just like the Pharisees. And he goes on and he says, is it because of the bread? And Jesus says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked him, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do your eye, do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves and the five thousand? How many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves from the four thousand, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They said seven. He said to them, you still not understand? <laughs> I love this. I'm telling you. 
Do you understand he's confronting their faith? You say, well, man, if I seen him feed 5,000, I would be different than them. If I seen him feed 4,000 more, I would be different. He's trying to tell them lunch is going to be all right, guys. We're going to be all right for lunch. Even though you didn't pack your lunch, it's going to be okay. You can trust me. I'm trying to teach you to trust in me. And so he's in the boat saying, don't you understand still? Are you just like the Pharisees or don't you understand? I'm the God over food. I'm the God over weather. I'm the God over the demonic realm. I'm the God over death. And he's saying, if you're ever going to serve me with faith, why do you keep questioning me? Don't you understand? Don't you have eyes to see or do you have eyes and still can't see? Then he goes on. Let's go back to chapter 4, which is before he fed 9,000. You say, well, they should have known after the 5,000 and the 4,000. They should have known way back in chapter 4. Let's look at this. In chapter 4, it says, on that day, evening came. He said to them, let's go to the other side. And after dismissing the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And then a fierce wind developed. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling with water and Jesus himself was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And they said, wake him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Can I tell you something? When he says, why are you afraid? That is the same word Paul uses in Timothy. It's this dielia. It's the word that means cowardice, stepping back, not stepping in, walking away. They're still not trusting in God. And he got up and told the wind, I rebuke the wind and, and, and be quiet. He said, do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And something interesting here that I never noticed. Mark actually uses the same words that were used in chapter 1 when a demon showed up at the service and he told the demon, it says he rebuked the demon and said, be quiet. And when he was on the boat and the wind and the waves were crashing, he told the wind and the waves, it says he rebuked the wind and he said, be quiet. And I never noticed this. And church, can I tell you something? This is something that I didn't notice and is very important. When he rebukes, listen to this. I wrote down the um, grammar here. He rebukes the wind and the storm in a singular uh, noun form, which means he personifies the storm and rebukes it. And so, yes, the storm hears him and stops becomes completely still. But a lot of commentators, by the way that he used the grammar there, believed that it wasn't necessarily the storm he rebuked, but it was demonic. That whatever was on that ship that made them fearful and made them terrified, and it was magnified, something was magnifying fear in their hearts. And Jesus said, stop! And he muzzled it, and he said, quit! And and the moment Jesus said that, uh, yes, the storm had no choice but to stop. But how many know the fear went away in them? And now they were no longer afraid of the storm, but they feared him. They seen that Jesus was that much bigger than the storm, that much bigger than what they were going through. He personified it. He said, stop. And he said, be muzzled. And and the storm stopped. And, and church, what I want to ask you is, is Jesus Christ 
the one thing that you fear. And all the things that you go through in life. In fact, we go through every day afraid of people, what people will think about me. We're worried about a reputation. We're worried about dying. We're worried about money. We're worried about all of these things. And Jesus Christ is saying, fear only me. (laughs) I'm above all this. I'm an authority above it all. And as we go on, and then Paul is actually telling Timothy, you weren't giving a spirit to fear these things. You were given a spirit of power and of sound mind. And so he begins to show them, in fact, in verse chapter 4, he shows he's over nature. Chapter 5, he shows he's over demonic. Chapter 5, he also shows he's over sickness. Chapter 5, he shows he's over death. And as we go on here, I mean, it's just amazing. We go through this storm here. But he, but he finishes that with, just listen to how this is in the Greek. Jesus says in verse 40, after he calms it, he says, he calms the storm. In verse 39. And in verse 40 he says, why are you so afraid or why are you so timid or why are you so So passive or cowardly. That's all the definitions of that word. And let me give you one more place that word is used. And this is a really hard one. This is Revelation. Chapter 21. Listen to this. Says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Church, that is the exact word Timothy used um, in Timothy. Or Paul used to Timothy. That's the exact word Jesus scolded his disciples for. And listen, this is amplified. The amplified Bible says, but as for the cowards, the unbelieving, the abominable, in parentheses he says, those who are devoid of character and personal integrity and practice and tolerate immorality, murderers, sorcerers, and in parentheses it says those who use intoxicating drugs, and idolaters, those who practice and teach false religions, and all liars, those who knowingly deceive and twist the truth, their part will be in the lake that blazes with fire and brimstone. And that is the exact same word, the cowardly and the passive. How many know you say, well, I'm worried, you know, because I'm cowardly sometimes. Well, so were the disciples, so was Peter, so was Paul, but Jesus is saying we can overcome that through our faith. But how many know that there are a lot of people that go through their entire life and they never stand up for what's right. They never stand up for God. They never stand up and have courage. You know, it takes courage to live for Christ. It takes courage for stand up for righteousness. It takes courage to live the life of faith. And the Bible says there are going to be a lot of people that have never stand up in courage Put on the armor of God and fight. In church, there's a lot of times that we stand up to fight and we turn around and look to see who's standing beside us and there's not very many people left. And God's calling us today to be courageous. And and I give you that verse, you say, well, man, that scares me. The, The cowardly are the first ones listed in the lake of fire in church. We should. We We need to read that. How many know that I've got to preach that? I've got to read that. You know, we've got to understand that we can't just be passive. We just can't be cowardly. We need to know that if that is the case, that is as great of a sin as those other ones that are listed. You say, well, that's a pretty bad list. You know, that's, you know, a lot of really bad people on there. In church, being passive is a grave sin. You say, well, man, I'm just a passive person. 
And God's saying, no, we cannot be passive as Christians. We've got to be able to fight. And you say, well, what does that mean? That means that we're going to go through a lot of things in life and you're going to have a tendency to want to back away from the fight. And God's saying, do not back away from the fight. In fact, have you ever thought about if you were in a war? If you were actually in a war, you know, like World War II or Vietnam or Korea, and you were in Afghanistan or Iraq or... You know, what is the first thing you would have to overcome? And think about it. You know, the people that are put into a war, you know, a lot of those young men, I I know men that I've talked to that were graduating from high school when World War II started. And I know one guy that told me the day that I graduated, I got shipped away to World War II. I mean, I've known people like that. Got drafted into a war. And I'm telling you, the first thing you have to come to terms with, you really don't think about the things we talked about the last two weeks. You don't think about the armor. You don't think about the uh, being battle-ready. You don't think about basic training. You know, you just kind of submit to that. You know, they're training you on your weapons. They're training you how to fight. But then it's when you get there... And you're about to engage in your first battle. And I believe the first question you have to overcome is, you have to come to terms with the fact that I'm ready to die. That I, in fact, I know men that talked about D-Day. And they talked about being in a plane and it being dark. And them just jumping into the darkness, knowing that their life was probably over. There were a lot of men that stormed the beaches of Normandy that knew that a high percentage of them were going to die, like like the percentages were really high. And so the first thing you have to come to terms with is, um, man, I'm giving my life for this. And as a Christian, I, you know, Jesus is very clear that unless a colonel drops to the ground and dies, uh, it's not going to bring forth any life. And unless we're willing to die, in fact, he says, um, if you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lay down your life, you'll get it back. And so in order for us to truly serve Christ, like Paul is talking about, like Jesus is talking about, like the Bible is talking about, we got to come to terms with the fact that, Lord, I lay my life down. Like I'm fully in this thing. I fully give my life to serving you. And if you'll do that, You won't be one of these cowardly, passive Christians. You will have dedicated your life to the cause of Christ. And you say, well, man, what if things don't go very good? What if, like, I have to go through something? Let me think that Americans think that way. They think, well, man, I may go through something. I may one day wake up and go through something hard. And how many know, church, we can't back away? We've got to continue to have faith in Christ. Uh, you say, well, man, it's easy for them because Jesus fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He cast out every demon. He healed every sick person. And He demonstrated His authority to them. But how many know there were a lot of people in the world at that time that didn't see the miracles? They just heard the witnesses' testimony of what Jesus did. And how many also know that the same Peter that's seen all of those miracles went through a lot? In fact, he went through his life and there were many nights he spent in jail, many nights he spent in prisons, many nights he got persecuted heavily. All of those disciples were beaten and battered and martyred. And, you know, Peter died watching his wife martyred. He himself was martyred. Paul was martyred. You know, Jesus didn't come in and do a miracle and deliver them. But they trusted Him because He knew He was the authority above every other authority. They knew that He demonstrated His authority and they loved Him to the very end and gave their life. And church, that's what we're called to do. Um, The Bible says that there will be a lot of messages in the last days that tickle people's ears. 
You know, if you listen to a lot of ministers, it's easy. You're not going to go through anything, but how many have been through some things? And here we are, still standing. We're still trusting. We're still fighting. And we're not passive. We're not backing away. We're not backing up. We're not vacating the battlefield. We're still fighting. We're still here. Look at us on Labor Day. We're here. Right? We're still worshiping. We're still serving. We're not looking around, counting to see how many people are standing with us. We're just standing up for Christ. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet this morning. Hallelujah. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to take communion together. And um, I just want to remind you, before I close in prayer, we'll go right into communion after we pray. But I just want to remind you how long we've been taking communion together. (laughs) That's a 2,000 year old tradition. And if you go back to Passover, it's, you know, like 4,000 years. And I want you to think of all the people that have partaken of the Lord's Supper. And church, as we take communion, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're just going to come up and serve the elements to everybody. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, I just want to challenge you today to live up to what He's done for us. And that means have the courage to stand up for Christ. Have the courage to be like those who came before us. That means going home in your families and living for Christ. Going home at your workplace and living for Christ. You know, making sure that we have courage and we're not backing away from what God's called us to do. We're stepping into it. Hallelujah. Can everybody do that? Hallelujah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, I pray as I charge your people today, Lord, that they would not have a spirit to be cowards, Lord, not a spirit to back away and be passive. But Lord, they have a spirit that would fight, Lord God, for the cause of Christ. Lord, to fight for your church, to fight for your people. Lord, to fight for those who are lost, Lord God. Father, that you would put backbone in your people to never back down, never back away, Lord God, to keep moving forward. In the name of Christ, Lord. Oh, Father, I pray that that courage that you demonstrated, Jesus, on the cross would be in your people, Lord. Hallelujah. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Church, you can uh, serve yourself. The elements here. We're going to take communion together. Just uh, want to remind you before we take communion that word we were looking at today is not the same as the other fear knots in the Bible. That's why it's a unique word. And so I don't want to be this, a state of passivity, holding back, failing to step up, and failing to do what is required. Church, think about that today. Hallelujah. It's not what we're called to be, and the Bible says that spirit is not from God. Hallelujah. My prayer as we take communion today is that you say, well, what do I do to step up? And how many know that that is different for all of us? The Holy Spirit is going to lead you on how to step up, what your next step of faith is. But faith is active. Faith is not passive. Faith is very active. Hallelujah. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hallelujah. Stick the bread together. Now I'm going to bless it. Hallelujah. Let's bless the bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your body. Lord, after you fed the multitudes, you said that you are the bread of life. Lord, we don't ever have to be in lack of anything, Lord. You provided everything, Lord. We don't have to fear. And Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, Lord God. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. And I pray that you bless your people through your body, Lord. Hallelujah. It says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How many are excited for him to come? Hallelujah. Let's pray over the cup of the new covenant. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, with this cup, Lord, you provided everything, Lord God. Grace, mercy, your love, Lord God, you've lavished it upon us, Lord. Lord, I pray right now that they would uh, find, Lord God, the power, Lord God, of forgiveness, Lord, the power of uh, love, Lord. And no matter what they're going through, Lord God, Oh, that that would flow through us, Lord, through your blood, Lord God. We are your children. Hallelujah. And Lord, I pray right now that the blood of your covenant would just flow through your children, Lord. Lord, do a mighty work in each life, Lord. Lord, I pray that your blessing upon it, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said. close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with your people. Put your anointing upon us, Lord. Father, you have prepared us for the fight, Lord. And Lord, this is a day and age, Lord God, where there is fear all around us. Lord, many are intimidated, Lord, by the world. Lord, and the powers of this world, Lord. Father, I pray that your children, Lord God, your people would not be afraid, Lord. Lord, that we would walk in your anointing, we would walk in your armor. Lord, we would have the courage, Lord God, that you poured in us. And the Lord God, we would stand, Lord God, in the day of the battle, Lord. We would stand to the very end, Lord, courageously, Lord, fighting. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said,